You're listening to This Is Yoga Therapy. I'm your host, Michelle Lawrence, and I've had the opportunity to interview many of those who are making a difference at the intersections of yoga and health. And I'm here to share with you their stories and conversations. Thanks for listening. In today's episode, I interviewed Nick Danu. Nick is a yoga therapist who teaches therapeutic yoga to misfits, the Gen Xers and sometimes Y who don't feel at home in mainstream yoga circles, alternative folks, punks, the rebels, underdogs, neurodiverse, introverts, geeks, and bookworms. Her specialty is helping people with back pain and anxiety, and she is also a yin yoga specialist and has a therapeutic yin yoga training that she offers. And we're going to touch upon all these things in our conversation today. It's so wonderful to meet you and have you here on the podcast today, Nick. Thanks for having me, Michelle. I appreciate it. And I can identify in a couple of those categories that you uh, name there in your bio. So you're, you're preaching my language a bit. You're hmm. definitely speaking to me a bit. I'd love for you to share a little bit more about yourself. Let us know where you're from, what got you into yoga and how it brought you where you are today. And of course, like the short version, I'm sure yes. that's what you could say about that. The Reader's Digest version for mm-hmm. sure. So I'm originally born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, which for those of you that are Americans is shares the same Rocky Mountains with Colorado. So if that helps to orientate you. And then about eight years ago, I moved to a little island off the west coast of Canada called Vancouver Island in the city of Victoria. And that, if you're looking for orientation, is just kind of right across from the Washington Mountains. So quite close to Seattle, actually. So that's where I'm living now. And as far as yoga goes, I actually was coerced into my first yoga class. I, at the time, was a hairstylist and a hair color educator. So I was teaching before I became a yoga teacher. And so I did a lot of traveling and teaching and stage work and, of course, behind the chair stuff. And one of my colleagues said, hey, we should all do this beginner yoga course together. And it was on Monday mornings. And Monday is oftentimes day off for hairstylists. And I had zero interest in yoga because I was a bit of an edgy kid, a little bit into the the heavy music and the punk and all of that. And the only visual representations I had of yoga at the time, so this would have been 1998, were of that PBS special, she's wearing the unitard and the long braid doing the sun salutes. And I just thought that's like hippie mom stuff. Like that's not for me as someone who is a little bit punk, a little bit edgy. I just had zero desire to do it. I had been doing other physical things. Like I had actually been a competitive bodybuilder briefly and I had run. And so, you know, it's not like I was not into moving my body, although probably not as much right then in that period of time, but I just didn't think that I was a yoga person. It felt a little too granola, a little too crunchy. And so I resisted and then eventually gave in because my friends bribed me with delivery. So pick me up, (laughs) take me, drive me home and bringing me a latte on the way. So yes, Monday mornings. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Monday mornings, you know, for someone who's not a morning person on my day off, I was like, and then from that very first class, I was completely hooked. I did that class and I now know, I didn't know at the time though, that that was the first time in my life that I wasn't anxious. It was for that 90 minutes that my mind was just focused on yoga and what I was doing. It wasn't future tripping. I wasn't worrying. I didn't have this sort of 
constant low level rumble of anxiety that I'd had my whole life. And I didn't know that I had anxiety until several, just a few years ago, because my anxiety was what I would call highly functional. And so in my mind, I thought that anxiety meant that you for sure were medicated. You were probably missing work and breathing into paper bags in the bathroom. And like, that was the stereotype I had in my mind. So I didn't think I was anxious. I just thought I was kind of prone to worry sometimes. And that class hooked me. I remember leaving that class and saying to my friends, this is it, yoga forever. So I practiced on and off for that year. I would convince myself I could practice at home solely when I had like very little experience. And then I would do the three poses I remembered and then go back to class. And then fast forward. So that was 98 to 2003. So I'm still doing yoga, still practicing, still going to studios and doing some things at home from what I can remember. And I was still doing hair. But what was starting to happen is a lot of the work-related injuries were really starting to take their toll. So hairdressing's very hard on the body, more so I think in the past than now, because I think at least in hair school now, they do offer some guidance with like, don't hold your shoulders like this, use your chair, don't bend crooked. But when I did it, there was none of that. And so I had some neck issues. I had really tight shoulders. I was developing wrist issues. I had back pain. So I was kind of starting to be like, I often joke and say sort of like an athlete on the field where it's like I was just being patched up to be tossed back behind the chair again. And I was having to reduce my hours. And I just started thinking about it at that time because I had a friend who was also a hairstylist who overnight found out that the allergy that she had that they couldn't figure out was actually hair color. And her whole career was based around that as a self-employed person. So she thought like she could just go get unemployment. She had no livelihood, no income, no plan B. And the more my body started getting injured and the more money I was spending patching myself up with the chiropractic and the massage and all the things, I just started thinking, you know, it might be smart to have a plan B before you have to give up plan A. So I did a lot of soul searching and sitting with, because I had always done what I loved for a living, I was very spoiled in that sense. I couldn't imagine just kind of going to get like whatever job. And so I just started sitting with like a journal, coffee shop, asking myself, okay, well, what else in my life do I really, really love? And definitely no one was going to pay me to read books and drink coffee. So that was out. You know, I just was writing all the stuff down that I loved and top of the list kept coming up yoga. And I was like, right, that makes sense. I'm already a teacher and I love yoga. So why don't I go take a teacher training so that then I could start to teach yoga? first teacher training was in 2003. And that was like a year and a half-ish. It was a year and a half program. And it was Iyengar based, but not Nyangar certification program, meaning all of the teachers other than one in that program were Iyengar teachers. So essentially that's what we were learning, but it wasn't like a program to lead us on the ladder of becoming Iyengar certified. So that was my first training. And I fell in love, of course, with even more. And when I finished my training, I had done a lot of therapeutic mentorship in that training. So we had what we called assisting and observing while we were still in the course Mm -hmm. where we were to pick teachers that we wanted to kind of learn with their specialty and, and shadow them and basically help them clean the room and get to ask questions and stuff. And so I had done some back pain stuff therapeutically because I had back pain. So I was like, this would be smart. Mm-hmm. And I think I had done a prenatal one too, just so that I knew what to modify if people came to my class. So that first program was a 300 hour because it was 200 plus a hundred of mentorship. And then 
started teaching that for a couple of years and then stumbled across a DVD in a bookstore called Anatomy for Yoga by Paul Grilly and watched that. And it completely blew my mind as far mm-hmm. as just understanding that we all had different bones. Like that had never, ever been presented to me. And it made so much sense, especially in my own body. When I watched it, I started going, oh, that's why I can't do that. Or, Mm. oh, that's why I'm really comfortable in this. And so it really started to shift the way that I saw my body, but also then my students' bodies. I started to realize that the reason they weren't doing what I was saying isn't because they didn't understand the direction. It's because they probably couldn't for their body, or maybe they needed a different version Mm -hmm. of what I was saying. So it really started to shift the way I taught, trying to do this real quick timeline. And then in about 2007, I walked into a yoga studio that I never go to just to buy a yoga bolster and saw a poster with Paul Grilly. So the guy from Anatomy for Yoga on there saying, here's a yin yoga workshop. I had no idea what yin yoga was, never even heard of it. I just knew that his presentation had changed the way I taught completely. And I thought I need to go to that workshop, like whatever he's doing, I need to be there. And so I marched upstairs and signed up. And that was my first introduction to yin. And again, it was a re-falling in love to a much deeper level, even with yoga Mm. after doing that practice. A couple of years later, I went away and started studying with Paul. And I have uh, 500 hours with Paul. Somewhere in between there, I started working with folks with back pain. It wasn't my intention to niche into back pain. It just sort of fell in my lap because I had done all this mentorship with that. And also a ton of self-study. So I was like constantly diving down the rabbit holes of like yoga and back pain and spine health and looking at pictures and x-rays and just was like really nerding out about it. And then I had a colleague who had a back pain class at a gym, ironically, and she was moving away. And she asked if I'd like to take this class over. And I initially said no, because the kind of back care classes that I had in my mind were like the ones I took in my training where people were very injured still, like walking in with neck braces, you know, very, very injured still. And I just thought, I know I was, you know, even though I'd done a lot of self-study, I wasn't naive to the fact that I was still a new teacher and I wasn't a yoga therapist yet. So I was like, oh no, no, I don't want to do that. And then she said, no, no, it's not like that. These people are already going to the gym. Like they've Mm -hmm. already filled out their Q, whatever it's called Q form. Can't remember the one about injuries. And, you know, they're if they have a previous back injury, they're in maintenance mode, or they're just people that sit at a desk all day and they're sore and tight. And I was like, well, maybe. So I went to several of those classes that she taught and was like, oh yeah, I could totally do this. And so started teaching a class that I called back pain yoga. That one class then eventually turned into five classes a week. And this was all before taking my yoga therapy training. I had done so much self-study, so much deep diving into this because I was really, really passionate about it. By the time I did take my yoga training, even when I, we did the back hair modules, I was like, yeah, no, <laughs> I got that. I learned a ton. Don't get me wrong in that yoga therapy training. But as far as the back hair stuff, I think there was maybe one takeaway, but everything else, it was like, yeah, immersing myself in this for at that time, probably over 10 years. And then I decided to take my yoga therapy training, but I'll pause there because you probably have something to ask, I'm guessing. Yeah, no, I I love all of that. I mean, it seems like it was an incredible build upon journey that started with yourself and your own desire for healing and then your passions and those pivotal moments that so many of us have when we're introduced to a particular teacher or have a 
a real aha moment. So it sounds like a pretty strong trajectory in the place you are now, I guess, especially with the back pain stuff. And from the perspective of the fact that you're a yoga therapist, I'm curious about the misfit part, right? And Mm. the accessibility, because when I hear your story, of course, you started out in the way that you did and were kind of convinced to go into yoga because you didn't see yourself as a yoga person. And I can totally relate to that. But then you did some pretty hardcore trainings in a way where you were with yoga people for many, many years. And the Iyengar tradition is like no joke, you know, in terms of this way. Let's talk about this other side of like how you put yourself out there in in a way that's accessible and non-intimidating and debunks the myths about who yoga should be for or how it should be like performed even. And I'm Mm -hmm. using air quotes because we know that that is not what it should be, right? But there's those expectations out there in the world, unfortunately. And I would have to say that if we were to look at the population as a whole, I would expect more of us to be misfits than not. And it would be leaving a whole bunch of people out if folks like you and me and all the misfits out there weren't reaching them. Talk to me about that part of it and how you do that. Like, how do you put yourself out there in a way that's accessible? And tell me about the people you work with. And how you make it fun and real for them, because I'm imagining that's part of it. Yeah. I didn't have this niche of misfits when I first started teaching. When I first started teaching, you didn't need a niche as a yoga teacher. Mm-hmm. There were so few of us doing that's this for right. a living. You could just yep. put up a well-designed color poster in a strategic location and your classes would fill. Yeah. And so I, when I was in I Calgary, can remember those days. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so when I was in Calgary, that's sort of the train that I rode. I just taught a class. When it filled, I added another. Eventually... I moved away from teaching in kind of like, you know, high-end gyms to renting out church spaces and community spaces and running my own classes. Mm. Um, So you met the people where they were, it sounds like. Yeah, I didn't really love gym culture and I certainly didn't hang out and work out there. Even though I had a background as a bodybuilder, I wasn't hanging out when I wasn't teaching. And one of the gyms closed, the one where I had my first back pain class, they were closing because the landlord had jacked up their rent and they were just going to let the gym go. And it wasn't my intention to start renting space, but the students were obsessed. Mm. They were like, no, we can't let this class go. What are we going to do about our class? Like you need to find somewhere else for this class. And I was just like a fairly new teacher still. It was like, I just thought I was going to go look for another Monday lunch hour time slot somewhere. And they were just like, we can't, we need this class. So I thought, okay, well, it was kind of April, May-ish. I said, well, give me a couple months or maybe this summer. I took everyone's email. This is, so dear listener, this is long before iPads and iPhones. I took everyone's email down with paper and just said, let me kind of ponder how I might be able to do this. And then I'll, I'll email you with what I find out. And so I just went walking around and the gym was downtown. So it was a lunch hour class, which was people were coming on their lunch. And I started walking downtown and thought, is there anywhere down here where there was only one downtown studio? And I did reach out to her, but just to be frank, the amount that she was willing to pay me, considering that I was bringing a whole clientele with me, I was like, I don't think so. So I just started walking around downtown and I walked into a church and just said, do you by chance rent space? And she said, we do. And I said, oh, awesome. I'm looking for a lunch hour. And they said, we have Thursdays at lunch available. I'll show you the room. And I said, sold. And I just put the deposit down, emailed everybody. was like, here's what we're going to do. 
and did a registered series, which a lot of people said for downtown wouldn't work because people have meetings and it's lunch hour and I proved them wrong. It turns out if people are getting a lot of relief and solace from what you're doing, they will commit to it. And so they started coming and then that class led to another class downtown. So I had two a week because they kept filling and getting a wait list. So I'd add another one. And then that allowed me to add a couple more in a different neighborhood where I taught. So I just kind of started slowly shifting all my classes to me renting space, registering everybody myself. And it was through that process that I sort of discovered my niche, or at least roughly. So I already knew I've worked a lot with back pain, but I didn't really know other than that who I was working with. And when the discussion of niching was starting to come up in the, the yogaverse, I started looking at my students when they were in Shavasana and trying to figure out what they all had in common. There were different genders, different tax brackets. Some of them lived in the neighborhood. Some of them drove in different age groups. Like I was just really struggling because I was thinking of my niche as a demographic people between this age and this age and this tax bracket. And so, because I was very new to business stuff back then. So I just kept looking at them while they were in Shavasana and trying to go, what do you have in common with you and you and you? Like, I can't see the common thread here until one summer I was taking the summer off to go study with Paul Grelly. And one of my students said, now this is again going to date how long ago this was. Is there a DVD (laughs) that you can recommend that I could get to practice with over the summer? And of course, I recommended all the usual suspects like the AM, PM, GAIM one and the things that were out at the time. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, I tried that when we did our Christmas break, but they don't teach like you do. And for some reason, that kind of just sparked that there was something, maybe the niche wasn't who they were, but what I was doing. And so I just asked him, I was like, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you show us different ways to do the poses. If we can't do the full poses, you teach us how to use props and you give us other poses if that pose isn't good because we have an injury and like nobody else teaches like that. And that's when I was like, ah, I'm teaching the people who aren't yoga people. In some senses, I was teaching me before I found yoga. The first part was I'm teaching people who aren't yoga people. And my first kind of way to summarize that was I said yoga for the rest of us. But I started realizing later in life, especially as I moved to a new city and was like rebuilding, that even that was a bit too general. And so that's where yoga for misfits came about. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I spelled it out so specifically on my website is because I would get people coming to my classes and I still do. It's not a problem. I'm, I'm happy to have them who I would look at when they'd come in and go, you're a misfit. Really? You feel like a misfit? Like, I don't, I don't see it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, yes, those qualities that I mentioned in that list that you read of, you know, introverts, geeks, bookworms, punks, et cetera, et cetera, is a way to kind of narrow down who I work with. But oftentimes I find that people may only check one or two of those mm-hmm. boxes in that list, mm-hmm. but because they continue reading on my website, They're just like, okay, that's it. I'm sold. You know, so they might be a boomer. They might not be Gen X or sometimes Y, for example, but they don't feel flexible. They don't feel comfortable in yoga circles. They are introverted. And so they're just like, yes, Mm -hmm. this is the class for me. Yeah. And in like some ways you've narrowed it down and niched it, but you've also seen them. Now they're seen. They mm-hmm. feel seen and, and they and they can relate. And, and we all want that a sense of belonging in a way, mm-hmm. right? So we, you don't have to check off all those boxes in order to, I think, resonate with the way in which you've put yourself out there to the people that you're serving. Yeah. 
Most often when people read my homepage and then come to class or email me, one of the first things they say is, I felt like you were talking directly to me. Yes, that's what I mean. That's what we all want to do in marketing. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And that's because once I knew who they were, I started interviewing some students and asking them questions. And then I was using their words in my Mm -hmm. copy, not my words. Right. And so brilliant. There's yeah, there's a free business tip for anybody listening. It was my students that said, I went to a yoga class, but it felt more like boot camp than yoga. Like that's Mm -hmm. not my words, their words. Or I really like yoga, but I don't really like yoga people. It's too granola. Like that's, you know, that's their words. Uh Um, So I started just kind of really getting curious about who these people were, that what was I doing differently that made them feel like this is my home for yoga. Mm -hmm. And that took a couple of years actually of kind of like really picking that apart and interviewing people. And, but then now I think I've got it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So let's talk about the therapeutic yin piece. So maybe what got you specifically in there, although you've already kind of mentioned that a bit with your passion and love for yin and meeting Mm -hmm. but like that focus of therapeutic yin, was there a gap that you wanted to address or yeah. yeah. And that I was then the therapeutic yin or what they could expect in that too. Yeah. I mean, originally I would say that, so what happened was I already had this yin expertise When I started taking my yoga therapy training, I already had over 400 hours of yin training. So I was very committed and enmeshed and loved the style and had been teaching it and just, and practicing it a lot. And what I started to realize when I was in my yoga therapy training is that there was a whole lot of misconceptions about what yin was. I would just hear comments from other teachers or trainers. And I'd think, where did you get the idea? That's what happens in yin or that's not what we do in yin. So that was part of it. And then the other part of it was I did have a bit, I will say of a, um, a little bit of a dark night of the soul when I was in my therapeutic training and I took my trauma informed or my trauma module, which then I mentored with as well so that I could get that information more than once. I really started having a bit of a, a divergence in myself because I loved yin And yet, if I was looking at how the trauma center was defining trauma-sensitive yoga, yin wouldn't fit. They have a specific protocol, right? And so I was like, how am I going to align these two things that I love? And it it was challenging at the beginning because I was like, do I either have to not be a yoga therapist and keep yin or the other way around. Do I keep you in and just say, well, this yoga therapy education was fun, but I'm moving on. You know, can you say more about that before you even go on? Cause I feel like anything could be made trauma informed. So what was that moment where you thought the two couldn't coexist? Well, what, I think what, because what I was hearing, <laughs> I was hearing the trauma sensitive, which is sort of TM'd by the trauma yeah. center. Right. And they have a specific protocol. Sure. And so I was looking at that protocol and like still quiet, not a lot of talking. None of that was uh, part of their framework. And I was like, uh-oh, those are essential parts of yin. Like I, I can't teach yin and prattle on the whole time talking. And I, you know, like, so I just thought, what am I going to do? And so what I did, it was interesting because my last training wasn't going to be my last training with Paul and probably won't be, but then the COVID happened. So haven't gone back since, but the one right before the dark days, I was in my yoga therapy training. And I took a two weeks off to go and study with Paul again and get my kind of last hundred for the 500. And as I was in that training, I just started seeing things through a new lens. Languaging, for example, there was words that the the 
yin community all use that I just started feeling like, Ooh, I don't really like those. And not only do I not like them and do they not feel trauma informed, they don't feel accurate actually Mm -hmm. either. So things like coming to your edge, first of all, I don't really think that an edge is a great visual for anybody Mm -hmm. because what has edges, knives, cliffs, like not a great thing. Bodies. Yeah, exactly. And also when I come into a shape, I don't feel like there's an edge An edge makes it sound like it's a sort of a firm line. To me, it feels more like a zone Mm. than an edge. So that wasn't resonating. The fact that they talk about stressing the tissues, which is scientifically accurate. Mm -hmm. But when you say that to the average person, nobody wants more stress. Like, why would you tell people you're going to stress their tissues? You know, using the term target area again, Ooh, target. I was like, Whoa, that's war language. Like I just and I hadn't, these hadn't really stood out before. Mm-hmm. They didn't resonate. Then you can't unsee them now, right? Yeah, you but they didn't stand them. out as like problematic at the time. Sure. Even using the word discomfort left me with a little bit of like, yeah, but the line for most people between discomfort and pain is kind of blurry. And is that a skillful use of language? And so I started switching language. And so I, I met with Paul. We had a little one-on-one chat when I was out there and I just said, you know, I... I've been taking my yoga therapy training. And I said, and for the most part, other than a couple of things, it's actually really online with everything I've learned, accessibility, skeletal variation, individuals being able to do what works for their body, like all of that. I said, but some of the languaging I'm finding an issue. And he looked at me in a very matter of fact way, which is how Paul rolls because he's super human and humble and just not attached. And he just said, "Uh, well, you should just use whatever words work for you and your people. just like that. Right. And so I started looking at these words and going, okay, how can I switch them to something that feels less triggering, but also feels more accurate to the Mm -hmm. actual experience of yin. So instead of edge, I just say sensation, because the other thing about that is that sometimes that sensation is stretch. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's gentle compression. Sometimes it's actually just chi flow in your body. So I feel like sensation is a bit more broad so that people, if they're in a shape and I say, you might be feeling sensation. They're not, they don't feel like they're doing it wrong. If what they're feeling isn't stretch. Now, of course I do say we're not looking for any pain, but sensation, it's more open. I don't use the word stress. I just leave it out completely. I haven't had to replace it. I don't need to say we're going to stress your tissues or we're going to work your tissues. They already know that's what they're there for. I don't say target area. I say intended area because again, the languaging, but also that feels more accurate. Like what you might feel right in your piriformis, I might feel a little higher in a pose. And so does it mean I'm doing it wrong? No. So I might say the intended area for this is, but you also could be feeling it elsewhere and that's fine. I switched over the word discomfort again. I just use sensation. So don't say edge, stress, target area, or discomfort. And then the other thing that changed for me was in yin circles, they often will say, you come to sort of 70% of the most that you could do. Mm -hmm. And what I was noticing was that that was fine for people who knew how to chill out a little, but for the recovering A types in the room, that meant they were going for a hundred. And so I started backtracking that as well. So I say like 50 to 60%, knowing that then there's a lot of room to back out, to go deeper as the body shifts and that they're in a zone where also their nervous system is more likely to be in parasympathetic. Mm-hmm. And when they start pushing into that 70, 80, 90, 100%, that's when that sympathetic response can kick in, which defeats the whole point of the practice to me. Sure. 
I really started looking at how can I make my yin classes nervous system focused so that yes, we're making these funny shapes. That's another thing that I changed. I don't say poses, I say shapes, making these funny shapes with our body, but that maybe that's not the primary focus. And maybe the primary focus is actually getting them into constructive rest and guiding them with some mindfulness there for a while so that they have an opportunity to start to switch gears and to fully arrive before we're even going into these funny shapes that we make with our body. And then also at the end, allowing a good amount of time again for nervous system nourishment. So that really started to shift as well, where I thought, started thinking if my students in this class get nothing else other than a good bathe of their parasympathetic nervous system, I can dust my hands off and feel complete with that. And that the, the poses are just sort of like, accessory to that as opposed to the main focus. So that started to change. Mm -hmm. Now, also a whole bunch of accessibility, but I would say I was already all over the accessibility train. Again, being Iyengar trained, I've been a props queen for many, many years. So I've always really had the ability to look at people and go, you don't look comfortable. What if we put a block here? What if we try to bolster? Maybe if we shifted this, how does that feel? So that part didn't change. A bigger focus on interoception which is, of course, when you're not a yoga therapist, most of us in yoga teachers don't even know what that word means. Mm-hmm. But I really started looking at my classes as a place for number one, nervous system nourishment, number two, a way for my students to cultivate interoception. So that changed how I cue, what I talk about, where I direct their attention. And then the third part is like, oh yeah, and we're going to do some poses. But that kind of became the priority for me was deep rest and practicing interoception while making some funny shapes with our body. Luckily also yin is already very functional form of yoga. I didn't have to alter that at all. Like it's very clear in yin that we're doing this for this reason, not just kind of randomly throwing Mm -hmm. shapes in Mm because they're fun. So that was kind of how it started to shift. And, and of course, because Paul is incredibly humble and human and not at all attached to his way air quotes of doing things. He was totally on board with all of it. He was just like, yeah, I mean, you should do whatever you think is right for your people. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how it shifted. And then I started to feel like, okay, now I can say what I'm teaching is therapeutic in because it has these key differences from Mm. other styles of other teachers teaching in, or just kind of how we were generally trained in most of our trainings. And so now I offer all of that when I train teachers as well. It's a great distinction. Yeah. It's a real focus on like, okay, nervous system nourishment. You know, we often joke like you get constructive rest, you get constructive rest. And I love seeing actually my graduates when they do their, their final assignments, seeing that all of them start every sequence with constructive rest. And I tell them, I'm very clear. I'm like, by the way, this isn't a yin thing. This is a therapeutic thing. Use it or don't, but they all fall so in love with starting that way that they just end up doing it. So now that's how I train teachers as well which is a bit of a different way to train teachers. Mm-hmm. I don't offer in my course because it is at this time, it's it's only 60 plus hours, but I have a feeling it won't be long before. It's much longer because it's a continuing ed module. It's not designed for new teachers. It's designed for experienced teachers or at least teachers who already have a 200. And I feel like that's what kind of makes it stand out. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time to even claim the term therapeutic mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. But what happened was after I graduated my yoga therapy training, I'm no longer teaching there now, but I ended up replacing their yin teacher. They had a yin module 
And I ended up replacing that teacher simply because she actually wasn't a yoga therapist. She was a Chinese medicine doctor, but not a yoga therapist and also hadn't done as many hundreds of hours of yin training as I had. So I started teaching that module and they immediately started calling it therapeutic yin. And at the beginning, I was a little resistant because I was just like, yeah, but all yin should be therapeutic. Like, why do we have to like pigeonhole it this way? But what I realized over the course of that training and, and then really looking at it is that, but all yin wasn't being taught that way, at least as defined by sort of the International Association of Yoga Therapists, that, that it wasn't therapeutic in that way. Mm-hmm. And so what I was offering actually was unique. And it wasn't until the directors of that program coined it that. And then the feedback I kept getting from the students was like, wow, this was so different than any other yin that I've taken that I was like, okay, I guess I somehow found a little, another little niche there that I, it wasn't intentional, but, Mm -hmm. but it happened. Very cool. Very cool. I love it. And I think there is a really great niche for that. Or I think it's beautiful that you were able to take this practice and teach it in that way. Right. And I think we can do that with everything, all the different styles. So kudos for you for just taking the lead on that with Yin. I'm not really too familiar with other people who are overtly doing that, right? I'm sure there are others who are, right? Because they're yoga therapists as well and and teach quite a bit of Yin. But I think that sounds fabulous. So just to kind of wind down a little bit, and of course, like you've got the therapeutic Yin training now, you've got a podcast as well. I'll put all those links in the show notes here, but just to kind of wrap up, I'd love to know what your personal practice looks like. We put a big emphasis on that in our training. Mm -hmm. And I love to ask all the guests who come on the podcast, what it looks like for you. So tell us, do you have a daily practice? Is it asana based? Is it a yin practice? What is it? What does it look like for you? and, And how does it feed you? Well, it's definitely changed a lot over the years from when I was a new teacher and I had pictures on my vision board of me doing handstands in the middle of the room to what it is now in my fifties. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe 10, 12 years, somewhere around there. When I into my teaching journey, I've been teaching for 20 now, I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue. And so my relationship to practice had to change because I was also teaching 10 classes a week. And so all the energy I had was going to showing up demoing on one side, getting out. And so my home practice had to shift. And and actually at the time that was really hard on me, I was really not okay with that. At the time I was teaching what I would call kind of Hatha flow, but with a lot of therapeutics put in and yin. And that's what my practice was. So I would kind of do my Hatha flow and then on like moon days or days where I wasn't feeling well, or if I was doing an evening practice, I would switch it to yin. And that had to drastically change because I literally didn't have the energy to do the Hatha practices and still teach for a living. And yet I was committed to practicing. So the conundrum was, how do I keep practicing? So it shifted from mostly Hatha with a side of yin to mostly yin with a side of restorative and a boatload of meditation, which I had been doing some meditation before, but I I hadn't, and it was, and daily, but I wasn't doing as long. And I wasn't doing like kind of mini retreats or anything. And so I really, over that time, once I kind of got over the bruise of feeling like, you know, all the voices in my head of like my previous teacher saying, you can't teach what you don't practice and me thinking, oh no, I can't practice this now. Like, what does this mean? And then I realized, yeah, but you've been teaching it and practicing it for 10 years. Like you're okay. You know how to teach warrior pose, even if you're not doing it right now. 
And so it shifted and my practice became a lot more introceptive. And I gave myself permission to just do what I needed that day. And so how it shifted was I would sit. And at the time I was a morning practicer. Now I'm a nighttime practicer. And I would just crisscross my hands over my heart and take a few moments and close my eyes and just check out how I was feeling physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And then that would inform what I would do. And so I kept that even when I started to have more energy, I have kept the drop in hands over heart. What do you need right now? What's sore? What's tight? What needs nourishment? And then that's where I go. Currently, it's mostly either yin, restorative, nidra, or a lot of massage ball stuff. If I need a little kind of energy boost, I may take a little yoga break in the or a yoga snack in the afternoon and do a bit of a Hatha flow practice. But I feel like the older I've gotten, the more and more I'm drawn to these more quieter practices, meditation as well. So that's kind of what it looks like now. I sit still and quiet and I ask myself what it is that I need. And then that sort of informs what style I'm doing. Is it just restorative? Is it just yin? Do I really need some nidra? Do I have a issue in my right trap that really needs to get a massage ball in there? And then of course, meditation. And my meditation also evolves depending on on how I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I love it. And I think that's what we all aspire to do in a way is to really meet ourselves where we are with our practice as we learn more and as we know ourselves more and as we learn more about yoga and yoga therapy. So I think that that is perfect guidance for all of us too, who are curious about how do we look to cultivate our own daily practice? Sit with yourself, ask yourself, what do you need? And go from there. Yeah. I think to, to the teachers that are training, you know, in your program, one thing I notice working with teachers is most of the time when the students really struggle with sequencing or really struggle with finding their own words and their own voice, it's because they're not practicing. Mm -hmm. So to me, you have to take whatever you're learning from your teachers and you have to embody it in your own body on your mat over time. And then that's when your own words come out. And that's when teaching becomes less about memorizing rote terms and more about using languaging and words that, that really resonate with you. Mm -hmm. Come from within or organically mm -hmm. unfold. Yeah. Well, it was so great speaking with you today, Nick. I love getting to know you and what you do out there. And I'm sure our listeners are curious about it too, so they can go learn more. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thanks for the work you're doing in the world. If you'd like to learn more about who we are and what we do, visit us at innerpeaceyogatherapy.com.